are listening to the However Improbable podcast, a Sherlock Holmes book club that narrates and discusses Arthur Conan Doyle's classic tales. We're reading them in the order they occurred in the lives of the great detective and his good doctor. Holmes himself famously said that there's nothing new under the sun, but we're willing to give him a run for his money. I'm Sarah Kolb. And I'm Rissa Mercurio. This week, we're talking underpaid employees, bank heists, and Spanish violin virtuosos. The Red-Headed League is the second story in The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes, part heist, part comedy, and all-around good time. To listen to our audio adaptation of the story, go back an episode. We'll be here. Baron Gould places the Red-Headed League in October of 1887, and it occurs just a couple days after our last episode of Case of Identity. Though we should also note that, according to Holmes's newspaper, the story seems to be set in 1890. Why Baring Gold put it in 87? Your guess is as good as ours is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk plot. What a plot. <laughs> what a plot. <laughs> Mr. Jabez Wilson <laughs> comes to Baker Street with a peculiar conundrum. When he applies to an advertisement on the vacancy of the Red-Headed League, he hires Vincent Spaulding to wash his pawnbroker shop for half wages. Mr. Wilson copies the Encyclopedia Britannica for the League over eight weeks until one day it mysteriously dissolves with no trace. After lunch and a concert, Holmes, Watson, the police, and a banker delve into the vaults below Wilson's shop, where they encounter Spaulding, who is actually a notorious criminal named John Clay. Just in time to stop a bank heist, the police arrest Clay and his accomplice, while Holmes and Watson return to Baker Street for a whiskey and soda. We are excited to talk about the con, the amazing villain, and the great adaptations of the story. But first, let's hear what our narrator, Kate, thought about it. So my personal experience with the Holmesian canon is pretty piecemeal, very inconsistent. The man in the deerstalker cap and the matching cloak and the magnifying glass uh, is a vivid memory I have. I'm just such a sucker for any good Holmesian adaptation, especially where the dynamic between... Sherlock and Watson is the key component of the story. If I had to choose a personal favorite uh, stand-in for Sherlock and Watson, and this might be an unpopular opinion, I don't know, but I think I would probably pick Sean Spencer and Burton Guster from Psych. Um, the Red-Headed League is a story that has always stood out to me in my memory as just a classic Holmes story. If Sherlock Holmes were a monster of the week style television series and you were trying to get your friend into it and you wanted to show them a classic standalone episode, the Redheaded League would be it. And I think, you know, as the reader and, and Watson as our proxy, you know, we see as we enter the room, this very sort of mundane man and you get this description from Watson, you know, there's some fat shaming, there's some kind of classism, you know, you talk about his clothes aren't great, they're a little bit grubby, he's definitely, you know, an older gentleman, and really the only interesting thing that Watson spots about him right off the bat is his hair. But Sherlock is like, no, 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 wait till you hear this story, this is fascinating, I am in, let's do this. And from there, um, I think I have two favorite scenes in the story. And the first is, you know, after they've gone and done their investigating, they've looked at Wilson's store um, and the surrounding street. 
Sherlock kind of dusts off his hands, sort of metaphorically speaking, and says, okay, time for us to go do something else. And they just go off to a violin concert. And then, of course, I love the um, bank vault scene. You can feel yourself in this sort of cold, clammy basement, completely in the dark. And you're just waiting to see the whites of the eyes of the criminals to know that you have got your man. There's this interesting thing about John Clay where Sherlock has been keeping an eye on him. The cops have been wanting to, you know, Scotland Yard's been wanting to get their hands on him for ages. And all of a sudden here he is at, at sort of the heart of this wild plot involving redheaded men, monster of the week, case solved, wrapped up with a nice bow, um, and Sherlock, you know, and Watson right off into the sunset. And, you know, tomorrow's another day. So, Sarah, what do you think of this story? I love this story. And I also think it's really nice to have, like, a genuinely really fun, well-plotted little mystery after the kind of dud from last week. I think you made this comment last week that a case of identity made you go like, well, why did they publish any more of these? And then you get to the story like this where you're like, well, no, I would read 100,000 of them because it's so good. This is Conan Doyle at his best form. I agree. I think. It's got a fantastic plot, super weird, iconic moments, Mm -hmm. great characterizations. It's funny. It's sometimes very sinister and somber. It has really thoughtful moments of contemplation from Watson. It's got some great deductions, and it's just got some great lines that are absolutely fantastic. And you're reading a version of it from The Strand. Really phenomenal illustrations. Maybe my favorite drawing of Holmes, which is where he's listening to the concert. It's Mm -hmm. just this beautiful, beautiful sketch, a Sidney Padgett illustration that we'll stick it on Twitter because it's worth looking at. He's very handsome. Mm -hmm. Sydney Padgett was like all over this detective, and I respect that. Yeah, um, Watson too. Yeah, well, in this one. well, well, Watson's always that's, handsome. That sort of goes obviously. Yeah. yeah, Watson gets a little debonair, like mustache look. You can pinpoint these stories as there's something good to talk about. Like there's a good piece of deduction, or a good character, or a good plot, or good dynamics between Holmes and Watson, and this has all of them. And it also has this amazing villain that no one ever talks about. I'm so excited to talk about John Clay yes. because, like you said. Not nearly enough attention. Yeah. I'm like, where on is him? he? That's what I'm stuck on. I'm like, let's put John Clay in every modern adaptation and stop messing with Moriarty for a while. This is one of my favorites too. I think now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been a while since I've read through every single Sherlock Holmes story. Usually, I will either read a couple for my research or I will read a couple favorites for fun. Mm-hmm. And I always knew this was a really good one. But I had forgotten how good it is. Yeah. And I think it's really skyrocketed to one of my top favorites yeah. now. Yeah, I really top loved, five for I sure. loved revisiting it. I love the tone. I love the mystery. I love a con. I love a caper. And they're all it's of got those it all. in this tale. Do you want to start with the chronology and just get that out of the way? <laughs> yeah. As we must. It's one of those... I just don't know if Doyle, like, had in his mind when anything was happening. Of course, that makes the project of trying to put things in a certain order very challenging. Because he says this happens definitely a couple days after a case of identity, which was very validating. Because we're like, oh, great. Like, a couple days ago, the deal with Mary Sutherland, mm-hmm. which is nice to pinpoint that in a very specific time. Right. They name drop her. 
in this story. And they, they reference the like weird little argument they have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, which I also like that clearly they're still on this thing about <laughs> picking right. up the newspaper and, and debating about whether or not. Whether or not things are commonplace is weird or if there is just like the commonplace, as Watson says, is commonplace and vulgar. Yeah, so they're still stuck on that bent today. And I think this case probably helps Holmes win. <laughs> that particular Mm -hmm. argument because it starts so weirdly and then it just evolves into something much bigger. But but then we get this very specific reference to a different date of 1890 in the paper and they also reference the sign of four again. So in in the last five stories, Holmes and Watson or someone else has talked about the sign of four, which again has not occurred. So it was just like what Doyle referenced in terms of being like, oh, I need the characters to talk about a mystery that has already happened. He just keeps dropping Mm -hmm. the Agra treasure. It also, it's starting to strike me as a little bit of native advertising for the (laughs) Sinophore because the Sinophore did not sell very Uh well. And it sort of feels like Conan Doyle being like, hey, you like this? Why don't you why don't you go pick up my novella? Honestly, that that knowing what I know about Doyle and a lot of his motivations (laughs) for writing the stories, that might make more sense. He's like, you're enjoying mm-hmm. these? These are selling great. Now go buy the book. Come on. Barry Gould puts it in 87, which is where we have been. Yes. Or where we are supposed to be. I mean, it fits well enough. It's a little ambiguous to say exactly where Watson is living, but that's kind of where we've been at, so I'm right. not too worried about it. There's not a direct reference, per se, to either Mary or Watson's other home. No, he, like, so. is dropping by. Baker Street. Right. He doesn't seem to be living there, but mm-hmm. one thing I do like about placing this in '87, however, is this sort of seems to me pre the big thing that happens in you know uh-huh. mm-hmm. the early '90s. Mm-hmm. That thing that I'm sure everyone listening knows about, but pre the final problem. This is like the good old days. Yes, this is like the height uh-huh. of Holmes and Watson. Until you get to, like, 1895, which I think we get another height of Holmes and Watson dynamic and really good cases, but colored by the final problem and the empty house. Mm -hmm. So this is pre all that baggage. Yeah, very much so. And I think, I like, they're both kind of at top form. It's a top mystery. Like, it fits nicely here just because I feel like their dynamic at this point and what this mystery is and how Holmes solves it is very representative of his early career and their early heyday and how they're at. Um, Right, and where they are mm -hmm. as friends and as maybe roommates. Yeah. (laughs) Um, As roommates. We'll just say as roommates. But yeah, yeah, as friends and as, uh, you know, a crime-solving duo, which clearly they're still in Partners in basically every sense of the word. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about... Holmes and Watson's interactions with each other, some characterizations, because it's really rich in this story. Yeah, it's a really lovely, I think they both have really nice things to say about each other, which, you know, often you get it sort of in one direction, Watson writing about Holmes, but Holmes is also very complimentary of Watson. So there are a couple things that I picked up on that I thought was, it was nice to see that from both directions. It's been six years since they've met. (laughs) Visualizing where we are, because we have moved so quickly through the oh, 80s. Yeah, we zooped through the beginning of the 80s very quickly. Mm-hmm. And there are a, lo- a lot of cases in this like 88 to 90 time period. Right. I mean, we have a lot of cases before we get to the final problem that we still have to get through. So what struck you about either 
Holmes's characterization or Watson's or the relationship with each other. Where do you want to start with that? One of the reasons why this story is so nice is I think Watson has some really clear observations about Holmes and his character that we've seen hinted at or maybe talked around, but have not really come to the forefront in quite the same way. Like he's like taking a time out of describing this very interesting mystery situation to talk in, in just as much clarity and detail about Holmes and Holmes's character and his personality, which I think is kind of a funny thing. Like, you know, clearly he's aware that I think his audience is interested in, in Holmes as character and as a person, just as much as the mysteries they're solving, which Holmes complains Absolutely. a little bit about his editorializing in the story too, which I think is good. So that was kind of interesting to see. And we, they go to this concert together. Mm-hmm. They have their sort of like outside of hanging they around their at Baker lunch Street, and concert, like, which is very classically them. Yeah, That's what I think of them. Right. When they're out on the case, in between cases or in the middle of a case, I often think of them going to either lunch or dinner and a show. And so it starts with Watson rolling up to Baker Street and our friend Jabez Wilson is in their living room and Watson's like, oh, sorry, I didn't realize you were busy. And then Holmes has this really lovely line where Holmes is like, no, 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 stay. Like, no, you, you can trust this guy. Just repeat your story because I want to get all the details. And then what he says about Watson is, he says, this gentleman has been my partner and helper in many of my most successful cases. And I have no doubt that he will also be of the utmost use to me and yours also. Yes, I really like this. Yeah. And one thing I particularly like about this is that Holmes takes the time to say, in some of my most successful mm, cases. Yeah. So there is something about Watson's aid or Watson's company that helps Holmes to be successful mm-hmm. in his work. Very complimentary. Yeah, it's a lovely thing to say and probably very nice and validating for Watson to hear that from Holmes. You know, the very famous moment that we'll get to eventually where Holmes sort of explains why Watson's presence makes him a better detective. He hasn't said that explicitly here, but it's implied, which I think is nice. Mm -hmm. And then very quickly after that, we get what I would say is the line, the whole line of the entire series, or definitely one of them, right? Like one of the most important and loveliest and just encapsulating of all of the... Um, moments in the series, mm-hmm. I think, not only to characterize Watson, but that relationship between Holmes and Watson and why we like the stories. Yes. So the line is, Holmes says to Watson, I know, my dear Watson, that you share my love of all that is bizarre and outside the conventions and humdrum routine of everyday life. You have shown your relish for it by the enthusiasm which has prompted you to chronicle, and if you will excuse my saying so, somewhat to embellish so many of my own little adventures. And then Watson says, your cases have indeed been of the greatest interest to me. But that first, that first line about sharing the love of all that is bizarre Mm -hmm. and outside, the conventions and humdrum routine of everyday life is just so perfect. I think what I like so much about this is that it tells you so much about Watson and it tells you so much about why Holmes feels that he has this connection Mm -hmm, with Watson mm -hmm. and that Watson isn't just this dude who is living with him, who is chronicling his stories and who is his friend. There is a shared understanding between them and I think Watson has this veneer on the outside of a very normal person but who on the inside is very weird. Oh, oh my god. And I adore that about him. Yes. Like, the strangest. But on his face, you would not think of that at all. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a really beautiful sentiment. And I think 
like I, I'm, I'm extrapolating. I'm putting on my like thinking about this as a story and not Please as like a, an object, you know, hat. But, um, you know, I think Watson, we've talked about this. Like clearly he has friendships and people that he's connected to, but I don't think there are a lot of people that know him very deeply because of this sort of like forward facing presentation of here's one thing. He's got this respectable career. He was in the army. He studied medicine, you know, all this stuff. Um, eventually he's going to have like an established doctor's practice and the wife and all the bit. But Holmes really like gets to like, I think was able to pinpoint very early on, this is someone who's going to understand why I do what I do and what's fascinating about it. Then they just like keep that up and keep doing that forever. And again, I don't think very many people understand Holmes very well. So I think that's like this summarizes what is so special about their friendship is they have this shared love for things that are not inside the norm. They validate that in each other. Yes, and to move beyond the page for a second, mm-hmm. I think that is also why readers like this of course. these stories. Yeah. It's because like we also share that love of the bizarre. Yeah. It's not only home speaking to Watson, but also to us in a way. Mm-hmm. Which I think is very lovely. Mm-hmm. Also one other thing about this, we'll talk about adaptations later in the episode. Well, this one that I want to point out is not an adaptation of the Red-Headed League, but the episode of Elementary in which this line appears is in season one, and it's a very lovely moment yeah. between Holmes and Watson, and it has nothing else to do with the Red-Headed League, but I think that episode and that series more broadly really understands Watson as someone who has a very normal public-facing life, who tries to be conventional, at least appears to be conventional, but who really is this person who is very odd and almost at odds to some degree with society, Mm -hmm. tries to fit in Mm -hmm. with society, but in some way is always not quite able to fit in. Unlike Holmes, who is like, you know, not even trying to fit in with society. Right. Like, he is way out there. He's a complete outlier. And so I think that for Watson... Holmes being this beacon of weirdness is part of why he is so attracted to his lifestyle and why their friendship is so strong, because Holmes represents this lack of concern for convention that I think Watson finds very attractive Mm -hmm. and maybe difficult Mm -hmm. to fully embrace. Yes. As we inch towards the sign of four which is the story of course where this sort of really comes to a head Mm -hmm. and Watson makes a very intentional decision about the direction that his life was going in I I feel it's really good and I think fascinating to see this come up so clearly talk about the sign of four all the time and I was thinking about this the other day where it's like I don't even know where to start with the sign of four because we've talked about it so much huge tipping point here we're seeing them very tight very close friendship, like really bonded over this idea that they have this in common. And that's something that Watson's not always going to be able to hold on to. Or he makes choices where sometimes this is more important to him and sometimes it's less important to him. So that's also really interesting. At the moment, it seems to be a driving force. Totally. Watson is an underrated complex character. I, I think. Agree. I mean, everyone loves Watson, but I think we don't appreciate how complex he is. Mm-hmm. As a character. Yes. Enough. That's the thing about the story is that despite it being so short, there is so much packed into it. Mm-hmm. There are so many little nuggets of characterization that I love. For example, Holmes wiggling in his chair when he's mm-hmm. in high spirits. Mm-hmm. 
Oh. Um, Holmes trots out the famous line where he says, this is a three-pipe problem, and he sits, you know, tucked into his chair right. with his knees under his chin, smokes a pipe mm-hmm. for a while. That's a good moment. He has another monograph, or at least some si- some kind yeah. of scholarship on, um, tattoos, on tattoos, apparently. So, so far we've had, I mean, there's one about dirt. There's one about tobacco ash. Obviously, it's famous. Yes. The one about typewriters, which I don't think he's written yet. And now one about... No, that's just in his head. Yeah. And then now one about tattoos. In one of the first episodes of Elementary, Holmes, when he's up on the roof at the apiary, and he's talking to Watson, and he says something about, like, oh, I've just written the next chapter of my book Uh, on whatever. uh And he's like, would you like to read it? And he's like, would you like to hear it? And he's like, it's all up here. Yeah, Yeah, I think those monographs are probably... He's like, oh, I'm working on a monograph. And then he sits and (laughs) stares at the wall for eight hours. Yeah. Watson's like... Yeah, I'm the writer here. You're not writing anything. What's going on? Oh, Holmes prefers German music. Yes. We learned this. Mm -hmm. He also hums the pieces that they go listen to on their way to the bank. I know. You get this really lovely visual of him sitting there and he sits with his eyes closed and he like conducts with his fingers while listening. He's probably a very annoying (laughs) person to to have in the crowd. Like if you're stuck next to him, you're like, oh my God, stop wiggling and conducting and singing. A couple other little small tidbits before we get to the concert scene, because I think there's some moments there mm-hmm. that we should really dive into. One, Watson is still in practice, but his practice is apparently very lax. Yes. So he can pick it up and move whenever he wants to or put it down and move on. Watson brings his revolver oh, to the bank mm-hmm. vaults. So we get that as a bit of iconic imagery. Yes. And then we also get some of Holmes's self-education in action. So there's oh, this yeah, moment yeah. when they're out in London, and he tries to memorize the part of the city that they're in and all the shops along the road in order mm-hmm. to create this this map in his mind, which is, I think, very cool to see it in action, because if we go all the way back to a study in Scarlet, when Holmes walks in one day, he says you know, I've got all these mud splatters and I can tell you which parts of London they're from. Mm-hmm. So we know this is part of his deductive process to be able to memorize all these different parts of London. And we'll see this again come up in several stories, definitely in the sign of four. But I thought it was very cool to see it actually happen. Yeah. And it's a really fun thing to see, I mean, like for us as audience members, to see from the outside. Watson sort of describing it, and then Holmes is clearly picking up on stuff that Watson doesn't understand until later. And he's tapping the ground and, like, counting pavestones, the way it's framed in the story, the sort of mystique, which then he gets to, yes. like, reveal, oh, this is actually what I was looking for and what it means. Holmes sort of taking stock of, of their client, which this is one of, yes. these, my, one of my favorite lines and one of the bits that he will do where he goes, beyond the obvious facts that he has at some time done manual labor, that he has taken snuff, that he is a Freemason, that he has been in China, and that he has done a considerable amount of writing lately, I can deduce nothing else. <laughs> so, like, I know about this guy's whole life, but, yeah, other than that, nah, nothing. <laughs> nah, nah. Oh, and we completely overlooked Holmes and Watson bursting out in laughter. Oh, no! Which is just one of the this best moments of the entire a, story. Yeah. They're on that best friend wavelength where they're like looking each other in the eye mm-hmm. and being like, they know. you can't laugh. Right. If you laugh, I'm going <laughs> to laugh. Don't do it. Don't do it. And one of them starts and then the other one just loses it. Um, and poor James Wilson, who's like, I don't understand what's going <laughs> Why on Why are you here? laughing Why at you me? me? What's going on? Does not think that's funny, but. So if we take that moment and then contrast it with the concert, I think it's very indicative mm. of the tonal 
diversity of this story. Totally. We get very funny moments, and then we get these very contemplative moments. I think this is this is the scene that I think where Watson is maybe giving some very clear characterization of Holmes that we have seen hinted out and we have talked about because, you know, with the the foresight of knowing this is coming, you kind of have this with context, but Holmes' sort of dual nature is maybe how Watson has called this before under a microscope and really looks at it while he's sort of <laughs> sitting there thinking, watching Holmes watch this concert, which also is hilarious. It's a, like two big long paragraphs. This is what I paraphrased, I think maybe is the best. So this is what Watson writes about Holmes, watching him watch German music. All the afternoon, he sat in the stalls, wrapped in the most perfect happiness, gently waving his long, thin fingers in time to the music, while his gently smiling face and his languid, dreamy eyes were as unlike those of Holmes the sleuth hound, Holmes the relentless, keen-witted, ready-handed criminal agent, as it was possible to conceive. So that's one very vivid visual depiction of Holmes the sort of the dreamy, bohemian artist. Watson goes on to say this, which is the fascinating bit. In his singular character, the dual nature alternately asserted itself, and his extreme exactness and astuteness represented, as I have often thought, the reaction against the poetic and contemplative mood which occasionally predominated in him. When I saw him that afternoon so enwrapped in the music at St. James's Hall, I felt that an evil time might be coming upon those whom he had set himself to hunt down. It's a very good moment. Mm -hmm. One little part that you did skip over mm. that I really like is where Watson says, he, he calls it the swing of his nature. Mm. Which I think is basically the same thing as saying that he has this duality. Yeah. That's of a good character. Turn of but I like the swing of his nature because I think it also hints at what you find interesting about yes. this passage. I mean, to me, this is a thesis about Holmes being bipolar. I think this is the perfect encapsulation of the swing of his nature. Yeah. That he can go from these very extreme highs to these very extreme lows. Very quickly. Right. I mean, extremes is the word. And I, what I think is really fascinating about this moment is that first Watson starts off by saying, like, you see him as this appreciator of music and of this sort of, like, sentimental moment, um, which is so different than, you know, when you see him on the case. But I knew that because he's sitting there in that music that he's about to figure it out and... What, what does he say? An evil time is by becoming upon those he set himself to hunt down. So Watson sort of picks up on like he needs one thing to sort of get to the other. And that dual nature is very connected inside of him. The deduction that he does, his detective work, is the connective tissue mm -hmm. between those things. Mm -hmm. At the end of the story, he explicitly says that the case, quote, saved me from ennui. Alas, I, I already feel it closing in upon me. Mm -hmm. My life is spent in one long effort to escape from the commonplace of existence. These little problems help me to do so. Yeah. Truly, the detective work is what keeps him going. Yes. When he's wrapped up in the incredible little problems that can be found in the commonplace, then, like he sort of gets into at the beginning of the case of identity... Everything is a mystery and the world is amazing. And then as soon as that's over, it's crime is common, logic is rare. Um, so like, you know, we were talking last week, there's a bit of an extreme where we see him taking different stances on that. But I mean, it tracks with like when he's in different moods and when he's feeling different ways that really changes how he is feeling about this. <laughs> and it's interesting also, like this case is so good that once it's over that 
the high is gone so fast. Immediate. I would love to see this more in the adaptations. Mm-hmm. I think there's stuff about him being depressed. Oh, for sure. Certainly, mm-hmm. but I don't see it examining what it means to have both mania and depression. Mm-hmm. And I really think, like, Watson uses these turns of phrase of, like, his bursts of energy, and which we've seen a lot in, in previous stories, which sitting and brooding all day in his chair, and all of a sudden he's just like, you know, like, Right, dead. jumping over sofas. Yeah, yeah like he like Jeremy Brett does in um, this adaptation. Which I think is probably the closest you get to examining yes. that swing of his nature. Absolutely. And part of that, I think, as we talked about in our first episode on the Granada series, is not only the faithfulness of that series to the stories, but also potentially Jeremy Brett having mm-hmm. personally dealt with being bipolar and bringing that to the character. Yeah, whether or not that was intentional or unintentional, which I think was probably at times a little bit of both. I mean, for him, it certainly was coming from, you know, carrying his big copy of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes around and <laughs> being very faithful to to things right. like these details about Holmes's physicality and what right. pipe he was smoking when and how that correlated mm-hmm. to what his moods were. Right. So. But I think you can speculate to some degree. Oh, totally that Jeremy Brett found some sort of, like, you know, connection mm-hmm. with that character yeah. in that way. After Holmes and Watson laugh at Wilson... Oh, yeah. In Baker Street, Holmes shoves, quote-unquote, shoves Wilson back to, back into his chair. Because <laughs> Wilson gets up and he's like, how dare you laugh at me? I, I don't have to take this. And Holmes is like, no, no, no. And he, like, shoves him back into his chair and is like, stay. Yeah, Holmes is in... He's really funny in the story. He's great. He has this other little bit where um, Wilson is sort of like, (laughs) like lamenting, like, well, I lost this job and it's this this crazy situation and I feel terrible. What's going on? And Holmes goes, on the contrary, you are, as I understand, richer by some 30 pounds to say nothing of the minute knowledge which you have gained in every subject which comes under the letter A. (laughs) (laughs) So snotty. Like, it is hilarious. John Clay. John Clay. I Mr. John love Clay. Characters so much. Your Highness John Clay. Your royalty, John Clay. Yeah, what a good villain buried in this yes. story where no one thinks of him. Right. I think it's remarkable that he doesn't show up in more adaptations. He's so fun. Mm-hmm. He's such a little brat. It takes a little while for Watson slash the audience to pick up on exactly what's going on here, which is that this Jabez Wilson guy has hired someone in sort of shady circumstances. The guy in question has invented this excuse for him to be out of his house at certain times of the day so they can dig a tunnel underneath the pawnbroker shop to the bank to steal some gold. Holmes gets this detail from Wilson that he has this very distinctive scar and starts to pick up right away who that is. But then, of course, we, we don't know as an audience and Watson doesn't know. And so we're sort of in the dark about why he's so interested in this case. But Holmes has this very interesting little line before the big reveal that I really want to talk about, which I think sort of sets up the scene for who this character is and why I think he's so fascinating. So what he says is, he is, in my judgment, the fourth smartest man in London. And for daring, I am not sure that he has not a claim to be third. I have known something of him before. My assumption here. But if we think about who the other smartest men in London, it's probably Holmes himself. Well, it's probably his brother, Mycroft. And then Mycroft is number one. And then Moriarty, who it's interesting, A, to think that Holmes might know of Moriarty as early as this. Right. He's on his radar. Mm-hmm. 
Even if he doesn't know everything about him yet. Yeah. Or maybe he doesn't even know his name, but knows that there is some sort of criminal mastermind who's behind a bunch of stuff. And then this guy, like after Moriarty and Mycroft. If that just didn't like set up the stage for who he is, then nothing does. It's so good. Everyone is very complimentary towards John Clay, or at least Holmes and Watson are. Mm -hmm. As you already said, Holmes calls him one of the smartest men in London. He also compliments John Clay's ideas as very new and effective mm-hmm. in terms of the plot and the heist. Yes. Yeah. He's very we impressed We also have this moment from Watson that I think is intriguing. Mm. This is before Holmes reveals who John Clay is. And I think it's somewhere around the time that they're at the concert together. Okay. Watson says, quote, I had the hint from Holmes that this smooth-faced pawnbroker's assistant was a formidable man, a man who might play a deep game. Mm. I think it's a very good line. Mm. I like Watson getting the sense of what Holmes is getting at without knowing what's going on. And I like the smooth-faced pawnbroker's assistant. Just a very odd description. I guess, I mean, that means he's young and clean-shaven and handsome. And, and then he might play a deep game. Oh, I love that. Which is very, like, scary, like, sexy Watson. <laughs> quite, quite literally, because they're digging a tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I think particularly because Watson walks in the door with this sort of ludicrous, red-headed older guy, and then it turns into this sort of, like, mysterious thing about stolen treasure and famous con men, yeah. like... There's, he's definitely a little bit impressed with, like, oh, wow. Like, you're kind of a big deal, and I get to be in on this. This is pretty cool. Um, what else do we know about John Clay? A lot. We get a lot of information. Well, first of all, we get... We haven't really seen the police being intensely involved. But we meet a new police detective. Peter, Peter Jones. Who And Peter Jones has been trying to track John Clay down for some time. So there's also, like, in the background of Holmes and Watson's story, there's these two guys with their, like police detective and criminal dynamic which yes i get like thinking about things you want more prestige about like ooh, what's that kate um, beaten nemesis <laughs> nemesis comic, comic. Yeah. <laughs> with the like a, the locket photo of this the locket faced of, yes young man yeah. around your neck. <laughs> my nemesis <laughs> um, um but so it's through peter jones that we get a lot of these details because he's sort of the expert on this guy and he shows up with the like the president of the bank or whatever, to go see if they can catch him in action. So um, he also describes him as clean cut and boyish with a distinctive scar. He's young but notorious. He studied at Eton and Oxford. His grandfather was a duke. And then his, in terms of his criminal activities, he's a murderer, a thief, a smasher, and a forger. I also like, we get this moment where one of the characters, it might be Holmes or Jones, I can't quite recall, says that one day he might be opening up oh. like a home for adoption for children. And then the next day might be doing some murdering and thieving. Yeah. He's like kept a, a diverse profile of criminal activities throughout mm-hmm. his young life. And seems well, to be really good at all Well, and I think we can imagine that his outward facing public persona is of this young man with, you know, as he says, royal blood and... Mm-hmm. He's well-educated, he's high-class, and so he's very polished on the exterior. I don't want to sit here and talk too much about Moriarty, because obviously we haven't met him yet, but, mm-hmm. like, there are some similarities there in terms of being sort of, like, a sophisticated villain, being attached to an institution of learning, where Moriarty's a math pro- or astronomy professor or whatever. You sometimes wonder, like, 
was Doyle sort of testing out character traits before being like, oh, I got to come up with a real big villain. Well, there's this guy. But I like that immediately when Watson shows up and the police are there and Holmes, you know, introduces them. Jones says immediately, he has his own little methods, which are, if he won't mind my saying so, just a little bit too theoretical and fantastic, but he has the markings of a detective in him. (laughs) Just, like, immediately insults Holmes. I know. Right away. What's interesting about this story is it's Jones who makes the reference to the sign of four, because he says something about, like, Holmes was really helpful in resolving the mystery of the Agra treasure, which is mm-hmm. what happens in the sign of four. So like at this point, you know, if we can substitute that in for a story that fits better with the timeline, he's sort of well known among the police detectives in London of he's famous for working on these mysterious cases and has this sort of reputation. Holmes has a funny little thing to say about Jones, which he says he's as brave as a bulldog and as tenacious as a lobster if he gets his claws upon anyone, <laughs> which I like that um, image That's very, very much. Good. He seems to have a higher esteem of this guy than he has of Lestrade, but not very much. <laughs> There's something about, like, he's been chasing this guy for a long time. Like, they have some history. I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Right. And Holmes knows about it Mm -hmm. to some degree. There's a whole back history in this story that we aren't privy to, but we know exists. So Um. the, 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 the climax of the story all gets wrapped up very quickly. They're hiding in the dark. Watson has some nice turns of phrase about, like, listening to Holmes breathe next to him in the dark. And Holmes, I also think this is a good detail that... Holmes brings cards with them, thinking they're going to, like, sit down in this bank vault and play cards, but then things are happening faster, so they just turn off the lights Too and they quick. don't. But that's a cute little detail where he's like, yeah, we're just going to kill some time and, you know, play some rummy. <laughs> yeah. So John Clay shows up out of his little hole that he's dug. Yeah. They immediately arrest him. He insists on me calling on being called your highness or whatever. Uh-huh. He and his partner are off to be arrested. Yes. And we don't really hear much about the conclusion beyond that. No. Yeah, we don't get a lot, like, there isn't follow-up in terms of if he goes to jail or what. Or if he's hanged or whatever. Yeah, what happens. Which I think is probably likely. Yeah, I mean, he was trying to steal a bunch of Swiss gold out of a bank vault. And we know he's murdered people. Yeah, under. But, you know, I also could imagine because he's this intelligent, slippery guy... And he's wealthy. And he's wealthy. He's highly connected. Yes. His grandfather was a duke. That maybe he slips out of it and he's still out there. I like that. I like that idea of like, I mean, it's wretched, but I like that idea narratively. Mm -hmm. John Clay slipping away to do crime another day. Yeah, exactly. Because he's high class and wealthy and highly educated. So he gets away with it. A little bit of corruption in the police, maybe. Mm -hmm. Almost certainly. Yeah, this funny bit. (laughs) Where he goes, have the goodness also when you address me to always say sir and please to Jones, who's yeah. like hauling him and putting handcuffs on him. And Jones goes, all right, well, would you please, sir, march upstairs so we can get a cab to carry your highness to the police station. It's very Hilarious. funny. It's Clearly they're like, well, like, there's your history. Like, what is that? There's a little bit of banter Ooh. there. <laughs> they're having their moment. So to wrap this up with the plot, mm-hmm. I think there are two final significant moments. The first... So the banker says to Holmes, like, I don't know how we're going to repay you. Thank you so much, et cetera, et cetera. And Holmes says to him, quote, I am amply repaid by having had an experience which is in many ways unique and by hearing Mm. the very remarkable narrative of the redheaded leak. So again, we get this idea of the work being its own reward. Sometimes over, where Watson's probably like, well, we got to pay rent. 
do have to pay rent. Like, you know, that's fine for you, but he could give me some money. (laughs) Um, It's a really good line. And then I think, again, contrast with that quote you already read about his ennui, like, is really telling that that's where his mind goes next of like, well, that was good. And now I expect that. Now what? I'm going to have like a, a really good case hangover. So I like that moment because that tracks with everything we already know about Holmes and the way that he conceives of his detective mm-hmm. work and its meaning and import to yeah. him and why he does the work, which is also then connected up with his mental health. All these things get wrapped up together. Yes. It's, it's never just, just a big job. old web. Speaking of which, this final moments that I want to quote here. Well, I don't want to talk about Flaubert because I don't think he's interesting. No. <laughs> this final line um, that I want to quote is where Holmes quotes Flaubert writing to George Sand, who George Sand was a 19th century French novelist who, she was a woman, she often wore men's clothes in public. She was in relationships with both men and women. Notable Mm -hmm. personage, for sure. So Flaubert says to um, George Sand, man is nothing the work is everything. That, again, encapsulates, I think, Holmes's work ethic. Yeah. Yeah, and his worldview at this moment yes. in time. Very much. This is just coming to me thinking about this. Because his work, like, it's not just a job, clearly. It's it's an identity. It's a calling. It's a passion. And his longest and most important friendship with Watson is also sort of defined by the work you know, it's not like they meet up and talk about other stuff. Clearly, they do other things together, like a concert, which they do here. But, like, the reason why they have such a connection is because they share this love of things that are outside the routine humdrum existence. Um, you know, Yeah, that's a great is. point. So, man, man is nothing, the work is everything. You know, not entirely true, of course, because he has these connections to people and cares about Watson and has really lovely things to say about Watson, but... He knows Watson's a real friend because of how Watson thinks about the work. Watson is wrapped up in the work, which means that he plays a more significant role in Holmes's life yeah. than anyone else. Yes. Because exactly. everyone else, bar the police, but <laughs> I don't think we should count them really. No, they, for Holmes, they're like functions. They're necessities, mm-hmm. right? They're tools. So bar the police and really no, there's no one else. Watson is the only person who is as entangled in the work as Holmes Mm -hmm. is, and therefore is a huge part of his life. Yeah, that's nice. It's nice. And then Watson ends it saying, like, being very complimentary towards Holmes as well. He says, You reasoned it out beautifully. Yeah. I exclaimed in unfeigned admiration. Because just everyone's feeling real good about each other. Yeah, like, everyone's great crime, great deductions. Watson, you're the best bud I've ever had. Holmes, you're amazing. <laughs> Jeebus Wilson, you have some really nice red hair. That's it, basically. That's like, that. like, the whole, it's so funny to think about this as, from the perspective of the con man, where you're like, well, I gotta get access to this building. Luckily, it's owned by this kind of stupid guy with this amazing head of hair who's not gonna figure this out. So that's what I'm gonna take advantage of. Funny. It's such a good so story. Good. It's so Good. So good. More adaptations of the redheaded Lee. It's never not going to be good. It's hilarious. And just the scene, several hundred redheaded men yes. crammed into uh, a hallway. It's so good. <laughs> and so John Clay is like good. hauling 
Wilson through the crowd being like, mm-hmm. no, you really got, like, the perfect shirt. You gotta see this guy. He's got the best head of hair you've ever seen. <laughs> so good. I, I just kind of, like, had a brainwave where he's, like, pretending to be somebody else and doing a performance, which you also see Holmes doing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's a sort mm-hmm. of, like, theatricality. Yes, yes, yes. Um, sort of, like, contrasted to each other. Yeah, and totally. Also, they both size each other up at the end and are sort of complimentary of their ability to pull this off. And then the story doesn't feel like fiction. Like, it could be... This story is so good and so weird. It reads like something that actually happened where you'd be like, that's so weird. That can't be real. Mm -hmm. But it has to be real because fiction isn't that weird. Right. If that makes sense. With a very clickbaity headline. Like, the whole truth is stranger than fiction, Mm -hmm. but this is fiction. It doesn't feel like it ought to be because it's so weird. It works because the characters are so vivid. Even just, you know, like Wilson guy, his only point is owning a pawnbroker shop and having red hair, but he's just a very vivid character. What also makes this story so successful is that it's it's tempered by the more contemplative and mm. sinister mm-hmm, moments where mm-hmm. it's not, it never reaches the level of farcical, despite the ridiculousness and the silliness of the story. Yeah. And the plot, it always maintains a nice level-headedness. Yeah, both in the plot and how the case unfolds and Mm -hmm. in how Watson writes it. Let's talk about adaptations. Why don't we talk about the others first? Get them out of the way. Yeah. I only just mentioned a couple of interests because we really want to talk about Granada. It's interesting to note that this story, as well as The Disappearance of Lady Carfax, The Adventure of the Empty House, and Charles Augustus Milverton, all roll into the source material for the play, The Return of Sherlock Holmes, by someone named J.E. Harold Terry and Arthur Rose. So, I mean, those are sort of like top stories and this one yes. is getting lumped in there which i think is telling mm-hmm. of of how good it is and how well known it is um and then in the ace attorney video games who have their own sort of like uncopyrighted version of holmes called herlock schlomes yes this is the um lupin deal uh-huh which it like comes from that but then it they got put into these video games about being an attorney. They're in the first two, there are multiple references to the Redheaded League when Herlock Shalom shows up. The first is someone trying to dig a tunnel into a bank under a pawnbroker shop. And then the second is this, the, the Holmes character is fooled by a fraudulent ad about the Redheaded League and he dyes his hair red and then gets scammed out of five shillings. And then gets the guy arrested who's running it. In terms of like popping up in modern media, it's... He's attorney. That's interesting. And that's why I'm mad. <laughs> yeah, this definitely amazing. needs some more more attention. Yes. But we have to talk about Granada. Maybe one of my favorites. It's David Burke's second to last episode. So David Burke and obviously Jeremy Brett. He really embodies, as we were kind of already discussing, this dualism and this sort of like mm-hmm. bursts of energy versus contemplative moments. And the really famous moment, which I think he certainly added in. I don't quite remember if it was improvised or not, but it's something he decided to do where he leaps over their sofa oh, it's so good. to answer yes. the door because he's well, so, it's so in character. It's so in character. I think much can be said about Jeremy Brett's physicality. Mm-hmm. that he brings to Holmes, mm-hmm. and it's very on point, yeah. I think. And I also, like, the scene where they crack themselves up laughing, Jeremy Brett Holmes is sort of, like, covering his face with his, with his mouth trying to hold it in, and then David Burke just, like, falls out of his seat <laughs> in, in giggles, and then it, like, cannot get it together. It's so cute. We have a lot of good instances of Holmes sitting weird yes. in this story as well, which is in 
the in the text and in what Paget has illustrated, but we get so many good instances of it by Jeremy Brett in this series where he's never quite sitting in the chair the way that you're supposed to sit in it. Yeah. Well, was Jeremy Brett's bisexual sitting coming through a little bit. Yeah. Perhaps. For real, for real, for real. <laughs> As I'm sitting in my own chair, like very cross-legged in this weird situation. <laughs> the thing that I really, is really exciting about the story is how they tie it into the larger plot line. What do you think? Yes. I think this is the most notable thing about the adaptation, besides the fact that it is just a perfect adaptation, is the way that they thread Moriarty mm-hmm. into the plot without overemphasizing him. So in the Granada episode, at the end, we learn that John Clay is tied up with Moriarty's criminality, and we get the first images of... Moriarty, we see him sort of spying on Baker Street, just surveying what is going on and keeping an eye on Holmes. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a brilliant stroke because there is such a lack of connective tissue between Mm -hmm. one story to the other. Mm -hmm. I mean, besides characterization, but it's not... The Sherlock Holmes stories aren't novels. No. You know, except for the couple that are, but the short stories are moments in a life. So they they dip in and they dip out and there's not much plot going from one to the next, if any at all. So I think it's hard with the TV adaptation, particularly a long-running series, to demonstrate that this is linear progression mm, in mm-hmm. someone's life, in, in these two characters' lives. Totally. And so by putting Moriarty in there, I think it does two things. It, one, ties the series up with, you know, it it ties the episodes up with one another. Mm -hmm. Two, I think the really important thing that it does is bring Moriarty in before the final problem, so he doesn't just seem like this big bad out of nowhere. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like Conan Doyle does. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are reasons for that, which we'll get to when we get to the final problem. But. I mean, until he wrote that story, Moriarty was not really conceived. Which is a weakness of the series. Absolutely. And of also a massive weakness in the way that popular culture has overemphasized Moriarty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because really there is very little to his character yeah. in the canon text. And I think what Granada does is allow him to seem more sinister and menacing and powerful mm-hmm. than Conan Doyle does. Yeah, the buildup really helps. And particularly because you have this really interesting fascinating case a very clever crime this other sort of notable villain and having them then get connected to what then feels like a much bigger picture i think is really great and i also like having it sort of contextualized of like when moriarty picks up on holmes like maybe he knew of him but now he's like now you disrupted my he's plan. becoming a problem so you're an issue for me so now i'm really gonna pay attention which also helps things make more sense so it's it's really good but also not overemphasized which i sometimes think with adaptations making Moriarty like two-ham-fisted cartoon villain controlling all the strings. Yeah, like everything returns back to Moriarty. Moriarty's the puppet master yeah. orchestrating every single criminal. I don't I don't enjoy that personally. No, yeah. I think it has to be really well pulled off. So this is it's deaf just enough that helps mm-hmm. eventually when you get there, helps it feel much bigger. And then, you know, if you're kind of in on it, you go, ooh, okay, I know it's coming, but it's not over the top. Very good episode. Very good short story. It's the best. Okay, so I just wanted to do a couple really quick read-alikes and watch-alikes because 
I think there are a couple that might make for interesting pairings with the Redheaded League. There weren't any that were spot on, but there were a few whose themes were pretty compelling to me when thought through the context of the story. So many heist movies and novels that you could really dip into anything like that. Um, I, I think a big one for you, Sarah, would probably be the Ocean movies. I know you're a big fan of those. The novels that I was thinking of were... The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith, the Arsene Lupin stories, and there's also that Netflix series, and we did mention Lupin in this episode earlier, and there's also, you know, the notable um, relationship that those stories have with Sherlock Holmes, or should I say, Sherlock Holmes. And then the last one is a queer romance novel called Slippery Creatures by K.J. Charles. All three of these texts do interesting things with regards to disguise and betrayal and class and all the ethics wrapped up in those. And because I was really thinking about that relationship between John Clay and the police and why this story is so compelling is really, I think, a lot due to John Clay. I think going at it from not the side of the law, but the side of the criminal or the side of a more loose moral ambiguity is pretty compelling when compared to the Red-Headed League. If you have to pick a short story for someone to read who's never read a Holmes story before, this would be one. Yeah, I would say this is a quintessential mm-hmm. Sherlock Holmes story. It's got all the elements that you want. Friendship, music, weird crimes, great villains in the Granada episode. Maybe this is where we want to end this story, which I think is truly the moral of the Red-Headed League. Watson has this moment where he kind of calls Wilson out for getting himself in this situation because he's like trying to hire employees for half wages. In this point in time, it feels a little bit topical. (laughs) Considering some of the conversations that the nation is having about labor and being able to pay people. You know, if you accurately price the salaries of your jobs when you're hiring assistants, then you won't get notorious con men who come and trick you. Right, you're not going to get people burrowing under your shop. Yeah. I'm sure there was some structural damage that he had to deal with. And also that was probably pretty embarrassing. So, yeah. There you have it. That's the moral of the story. (laughs) Redistribute labor. Redistribute the labor, the wealth, the items in the (laughs) pawnbroker shop. And more sexy villains in home stories. More sexy villains. (laughs) Send tweet. (laughs) End of episode. Join us in two weeks for our narration of the short story, The Adventure of the Dying Detective. A special thanks to our narrator, Kate Murtaugh. And we are working on our anniversary episodes. We've been almost have done this podcast for a year, which is insane. And we want your help. You can find more details about this on our Twitter page, but we really want to hear from our listeners what your first moments of homes were. Was it watching The Great Mouse Detective? Was it seeing Elementary? Was it being transfixed by Jude Law's perfect mustache. Yeah, whatever your first (laughs) encounter with Sherlock Holmes is. So if you want to participate in our one-year wrap-up episode, we hope you answer that question. You can record it on your phone and send it to us in an email or just write it down and we'll read it for you. You can send those things and also thoughts about the episode and anything else to howeverimprobablepod at gmail.com. You can also reach us on Twitter at improbablepod. Our website, howeverimprobablepodcast.com, has transcripts, the research behind the episode, and suggestions for further reading. If you enjoyed the show and can spare a moment, please rate and review. However Improbable is created by Marissa Mercurio and Sarah Kolb, with apologies to Arthur Conan Doyle. 
Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, dear listeners, believe us to be very sincerely yours. And remember, pay your workers a proper wage. (laughs)